0: This is Sean Malone in Los Angeles, California, and you're listening to The Camera Report. It's summer 2012, and that means your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is once again slinging webs on the big screen. But according to this month's guest, this amazing Spider-Man inhabits a gritty and realistic world the likes of which his movie-going fans have never seen. We got to talk to the new film's director, Photography, and avid Spider-Man fan, John Schwartzman, ASC, about his amazing work on this much-anticipated blockbuster. John has shot more blockbusters than most cinematographers have seen. He is known for that dynamic camera style that made action films like director Michael Bay's The Rock, Armageddon, and Pearl Harbor so memorable. But he's no one trick pony. He was nominated for an Oscar and won an ASC Award for his thoughtful and classically beautiful work on Seabiscuit. And his other credits include The Rookie and Benny and June. He is kind enough to speak to us today about The Amazing Spider-Man, The state of the art Red Epic cameras John borrowed from Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, and about his career in the movies. He's also joining us from Los Angeles. Thank you, sir, for coming on the show today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Our listeners wouldn't know this, but you and I actually had to reschedule this interview, and just for fun, I wanted to read part of your correspondence to me. You said, Hi, Sean, it's last minute, but I have to go approach the IMAX Prince for Spider Man at 10 a.m. tomorrow. First of all, That is the absolute best excuse to reschedule anything that I've ever personally encountered. So congratulations on that. Um, Well, thank you. (laughs) And second, how did it go?
1: It went fantastic. And one of the great things, and one of the things you, as a cinematographer, you know, you go through production and you shoot a movie, and then you sort of have a divorce from the director. And then as you get close to the release date, you sort of, you come back and you sort of make up and you color time the movie. I don't mean that there's ever any sort of, you you have a falling out. It's just that once you're done shooting, the director spends his time with the editor and you sort of become an afterthought until you get ready to finish the movie. As that process is going on, what you realize is that you're running out of time and the studio doesn't, they're starting to look at the money that they're spending. So, you know, we have a term called CBB, which stands for could be better. And at a certain point you go, okay, well, you know what, we're running out of time, so this is as good as it's going to be. One of the great things about IMAX is the only horse they have in the race is to make the best possible exhibition of a movie that there is. They don't care who the studio is. They didn't have to finance the film. That is music to any cinematographer's ear. So when you go to IMAX and you preview, in our case, Spider-Man in 3D, IMAX is by far and away the best way to see any 3D movie. They run two projectors at the same time. Yes, one is polarized for the right eye and one is polarized for the left, but because they're running two projectors, their screen brightness is spectacular. So you don't feel as though you're watching a, a dim version of the movie. The other thing is you sit in a room with the engineers from IMAX, and all they ask you is, how can we make this better? Now, when you're sitting there doing your, what we call the DI, your digital intermediate, when you're basically doing Photoshop on the movie to get the colors right, the words that you generally hear are, when are you going to be done and we're running out of time? Not, what can we do to make it better? Obviously, not all movies get an IMAX release, but as a cinematographer, the shows that I've done where I've gone to IMAX uh, to supervise the IMAX release, has been, they've been so worthwhile and so inspiring, and it's just so nice. I always walk out of there thinking, wow, there's still a group of people that really do value what I do, and they want, and they want to hear what I have to say, even if it's going to cost them a little more time and a little more money, because they know at the end of the day, that's what their whole business model is based on. So it's fantastic. And needless to say, I recommend everybody go see The Amazing Spider-Man in IMAX 3D. It is stunning.
0: Speaking of which, on June 10th of last year on TechRadar.com, I read a quote of you saying, this is the best-looking footage I've ever shot. These are the best images I've ever seen. It's been a year. Do you still feel this way?
1: I do. And again, when I say that, that's not strictly only technical it's everything, and I thought we jumped into the abyss in a way on Spider-Man when I first sat down with Mark Webb to discuss doing the reboot of Spider-Man. And, and just as an aside, mm-hmm. I'm a huge comic book collector. I have Spider-Man one through two hundred. <laughs> I've been collecting and saving comic books since I was eleven years since I was eleven years old. I mean, I have. 15 daredevil ones not only i have 10 iron man ones tales of suspense 39 so i'm not a 52 year old guy who sort of doesn't know the origins of these comics right i don't have amazing fantasy but i have when i showed stan lee when he came by the set i brought my spider-man one he was very impressed you know so understand that i have a long history with these characters so when i sat down with mark and he pitched to me his idea, and, and, and I didn't realize at the time that it was a reboot. But, in, but in, the, in this case, it was a reboot that was much more really along the lines of the origin story. Because in Sam Raimi's, and those are wonderful movies, the reality is Mary, Mary Jane Watson doesn't come in, I think, until like issue 23. And anybody that's a Spider-Man fan knows that Peter Parker's first girlfriend is Gwen Stacy. So that they were going back to this story I thought was interesting. And Mark had pitched the movie to me as the French Connection meets Spider-Man. I want to shoot it in New York. I want to shoot it anamorphic, handheld. We'll get down and dirty. I want to feel the grit of the city under my fingernails. I want to see graffiti. I want it to be based in reality. I love the Avengers. I think it's fantastic, but it's it's based in a world that doesn't really exist. What I would say about this movie is it's based in a New York City that you can walk right through. If you get off the subway at 61st and Woodside Avenue, and walk down out of the subway platform, you will see where we shot this movie. You know, it's that's that's where we shot it. That was exciting because you know it sort of told us this is what we're doing. It sort of grounded our our movie, and I was very excited to to do it in film and to to shoot an anamorphic, and then. Then the 3D revolution happened, right? And all of a sudden, movies that were released in 3D, and this is post-Avatar, were suddenly doing huge numbers at the box office. And these were not good movies. And these were not movies that were shot in 3D. At the time, I think the only 3D movies really that were originated in 3D besides Avatar was the step-up dance movies, right? Everything else was being done as a conversion. In most cases, they were not good conversions, and they were done to really bad movies like Clash of the Titans. And I have no problem saying it. it's a terrible film. I mean, in, in every way, and then it's not even a good 3D conversion. Right. So.
0: Well, see, that distinguishes you, John, because most of my guests uh, don't make uh, statements like that for fear of uh, insulting somebody.
1: Does anybody really think that that's a great piece of cinema? It was a dog with fleas, and the only way the studio thought they could recoup was by converting it to 3D. And you know what? And they did, and that's their business. So I give them a lot of, I give them a lot of credit for that. But it certainly didn't raise the bar of 3D. And certainly when Sony said to us they wanted us to do Spider-Man in 3D, I was, a bit, I was ambivalent. On one hand, I thought, boy, if there's ever a movie in which the story – would really argue for shooting in 3D because it's a character that moves both in the X, the Y, and the Z axis, right? Spider-Man would be the one because you've got vertigo, you've got this kind of dynamic energy. And I remember the Spider-Man ride from 10 years before that was in 3D at Universal Orlando, which really was a pretty incredible state-of-the-art ride at the time. So I could, on one hand, I could understand why Sony wanted to do it, on the other hand, I thought, oh boy, you know, now I'm going down a road of shooting digitally, which I had never done before, and what am I going to be looking at when I look at these rigs? Because one of the things that the Spider-Man movie had to have was a dynamic camera. My background, obviously, if anybody knows, is I, Michael Bay and I have known each other since we were kids, and I shot his student films, and then we... Went, came, we grew up together at Propaganda Films, and then we did you know, the, the, the Rock and Armageddon and Pearl Harbor. And we kind of, between the two of us, I think developed a kind of hip film language. Certainly The Rock, I think at the time, sort of pushed the genre in a different direction. You know, we, we had taken some of the techniques that we had learned from music videos and commercials and and applied them to feature films in a way that I don't think people had done before. So I come out of a world of like, okay, the camera is part of how you tell the story. Certainly at the time when I started to investigate 3D cameras, I was looking at rigs that weighed over 100 pounds. So it kind of reminded me of the sequence in... um, Singing in the rain, where all of a sudden the camera's in like a refrigerator and you've got the actors speaking into the flower pot. I I, I said to Mark, I said, you know, how are we going to do this? One of the other things that we we simultaneously investigated was okay, what if we shot it in 2D and convert it? And we saw some great conversion tests that Sony Imageworks had done on Spider Man 2. The issue is not that you can't do a good conversion. The issue really is that where in the in the modern world does a does the post production schedule allow you to finish a movie twelve to fourteen weeks before it has to be released so that you can then turn the finished film over to the people that are gonna do the dimensionalization. That's what it needs, right? Well, a movie like Spider Man that's gonna have a thousand visual effect shots, I guarantee you it's never gonna happen, right? The only way you could guarantee making the release date on Spider-Man in 3D was to shoot it in 3D.
0: Now, I may be jumping the gun a little bit, but do you think you would have shot it in 3D had the epic, the smaller epic, not been available to you?
1: No, and Mark Webb is an incredibly bright, talented director. Very early on, we, he said, you know what, let's get a 3D rig together. Let's go to the top of a hotel in downtown L.A. We went to the top of the L.A. Bonaventure Hotel, and we had a rig where we threw dummies off the roof, and we chased them pointed down with our 3D camera uh, with a techno crane, just to sort of, you know, see what it was like. Like we would start looking at the skyline and come up and over and point straight down and then crane down. A very dynamic shot, something that was really supposed to get your stomach churning, you know. At the time, we were using the state-of-the-art equipment, which was two Sony F35s with these Panavision 19-90 to zooms on an Element Technica quasar rig with two hard drive recorders, you know, one on each camera. And this is all new equipment for me. I've never shot anything other than film. We weighed just the camera rig alone, 28 pounds. And sitting on a crane from the bottom of the 3D rig to the top of the crane was 5.5 feet. So that, that meant if you went through a normal doorway, the camera was about two feet off the ground. And I thought, boy, this is not very practical. You know, how, now, granted, the 3D effects we found were pretty, pretty cool. I mean, Mark and I both were, it, we were like, wow, this 3D thing might be pretty great for Spider-Man, but we're not going to be able to pull it off unless we can come up with something that doesn't exist right now. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I had a production manager on this movie by the name of Joanne Peritano, who's an absolutely phenomenally great production manager and also an incredibly bright person. And she had done the social network with David Fincher and, you know, having also done a lot of work with David Fincher in my past, he doesn't suffer fools. So if she comes out of that world, you know, I I know I can trust her. And she said, you know, I've got a relationship with the guys over at red and I think they might have something over there that you might want to look at. Now my experience with the red camera to this point was, was zero. I, I hadn't, I hadn't even seen one. You know, I have a cam, I have a camera body at Panavision, Panaflex 452. It doesn't go out with anybody else. It sits there. It's Although you can't own your own equipment at Panavision, I essentially own this camera body. I've had it since Armageddon, right? It just, it's my camera, so what do I need to worry about a red camera or this or that i've got, I've got a camera
0: if it ain't broke, don't fix it
1: exactly and you know it's there are more sophisticated movie cameras out there, but I happen to like this camera in any case I so I then I took her up and I went over and I met with Ted Schillowitz and Jared Land and Deanon and Jim Gennard over at red and I had a really lovely meeting with these guys and they showed me. This camera it was a. It, at the time, it was a non-working prototype. I want to say this is July of July of 2010, right? But I looked at it and I thought to myself, "Man, this thing is the size of a Hasselblad 501." I mean, I know I got a couple of them sitting in my closet, and I realized, and a light bulb went off. And also, you know, to be fair, this camera was really designed, or I think specifically for Peter Jackson, who wanted to shoot The Hobbit in 3D. And as much as I want to say I was the genius that came up with the idea of using the Red Epics in the the reality rigs, I really think it was Peter Jackson and Andrew Lesney who sort of saw that, hey, these two Red Epics with two Arri Ultra Prime lenses, the Arri Ultra Primes are the lightest set of prime lenses that are super high quality that exist in the world. An Ultra Prime weighs about two and a quarter pounds, and the Red Epic weighs five. So now you're, what are you, at seven and a half pounds, multiply that by two, that's 15 pounds. And Arri Alexa, which, by the way, is a phenomenal camera, weighs 15 pounds without a lens on it, right? So if I go Arri Alexa or I go F-35, I'm back to where I was when Mark and I did our tests, right? I was willing to gamble on the Red Epic, because it allowed me to suddenly cut the size and weight of my camera package by more than half.
0: Sounds like you were a little bit sold on it before you you saw what it could really do.
1: Well, I had to be, because it was the only way I could go forward in 3D. Having said that, the other thing was that I had gone to Sony, the engineering people from Japan had come out to meet with me, and I asked them if they could build me what we call a T-head camera, which is essentially the lens mount and the image sensor, and then you'd run a a large fiber optic cable of whatever length you wanted because it's fiber optic to basically all of the camera processing. So imagine you take a Sony F35, which I actually think is a beautiful camera, and you take 90% of the bulk of that camera, and you put it on a cart somewhere else. And essentially you have a lens mount and a CCD sensor that's the size of, let's say, four by four by four, you know, four inch by four inch by four inch box, and put that in your 3D rig, right? So I went to Sony and said, can you build me one of these? They had done it very successfully for Jim Cameron for his underwater 3D stuff, but they had done it with the two-thirds-inch chips. Uh. Uh, and, and obviously Jim shot Avatar on a two-thirds-inch chip, but Avatar is, you know, 80% of Avatars is pure animation. And 20% of it's live action. Spider-Man was going to be 95% live action. So Mark and I were—we both had decided we have to shoot this on a full-size sensor, you know. And then we sort of—we were tracking what was going on with Tron, and they were—they did a nice job. But the rigs were huge, right? It was a big—it was a green screen movie. They weren't in the real world, and their rigs weighed 125 pounds. They didn't have the same—they didn't have to overcome the same kind of obstacles that we had to. And also, they weren't going to move the camera in the way that we were going to move the camera and in the way that I move cameras in all my movies, which is, you know, they move. I (laughs) like them to move.
0: (laughs) Which is a lot.
1: (laughs) And especially in 3D. It's very nice to keep the camera moving in 3D because the perspective changes keep the image really sort of compelling to look at. When Mark and I were doing our testing with the big rig, Even if we were doing a shot of a guy just talking, we would do a very slow move in or we would, as we moved in, we might slide the camera slightly right or left just to see the background very subtly turning. It just kept it more interesting to look at.
0: Is that one reason Mark Webb approached you in the first place?
1: He approached me because he told me he loved Armageddon, that it was one of his favorite movies. And you know what? He and I sort of hit it off. And you know, the other irony is that my my old camera assistant and Mark went to college together. So she and Mark had been friends for years. So that was also – that gave us kind of like a – even though I hadn't met him, we sort of had friends, you know, that were – that. so there was a little bit of an informality there. So now I had two courses running. I had the red people, and I said, can you get me these cameras? And they weren't sure. And I had Sony saying to me, don't worry, we can build you this T-headed camera. And it was sort of like whoever was going to make it to the finish line first was going to win. I had people at Sony telling me that, you know, Sony's so heavily invested right now in developing the F65 and that the F35 is sort of old technology that really they don't have the resources and it's probably not going to happen for you. And don't take it personally, but they're already another light year ahead. Fortunately for me, and, and, and probably fortunately actually for The Hobbit as well, but maybe not so much for Peter Jackson. Peter got an ulcer, and they had to push their start date six months. He had a perforated ulcer; he had to go in for surgery. So I called Andrew Lesnie and I said, "Look, you guys aren't going to now start until April. I need to I need to start December third. Can I have your cameras now?" Andrew and I are are old friends. Uh, We've been nominated together a couple of times. He always wins. (laughs) But he's a great guy, and I love him. So I called him, and he said, absolutely, take. He said to me, take my cameras, but you have to tell me. You have to give me all the R&D, everything that you find out, because I'm taking not only his cameras, but I'm taking his TS5 reality rigs, right? Basically, I am... Jumping ahead of the line, right? The new Ferrari's been announced, and I get to be the first one to get it.
0: (laughs) While the owner is sitting in the corner watching you drive it, yeah, because he's
1: had because he's got to have his hemorrhoids operated on, and he can't (laughs) sit in the seat. (laughs) Right. So, so it's a it's both scary and a great opportunity. So now I have to go to Sony and present them with the idea that we're going to do a two hundred million dollar movie. That's their flagship franchise, not with the Sony product. Now that's not by my choice. I mean, b- believe you me, I think Sony makes great products. It was just that they didn't have they didn't have an answer to our quandary. So they agreed. They said to me, "This is not a prototype camera, right? And I said, "No, it's not a prototype camera," as I crossed my toes and my fingers, because of course, I knew it was. Um, and God love Jim Gennard and all of the Red Army and all of those guys. I could not have made this movie without them. I went to Jim, and I said, because he was like, I'm not sure. I said, Jim, I said, The Hobbit, and I know you have a a relationship with Peter Jackson, and that's a big movie, but this is the Sony Corporation, and this is Spider-Man, and this is shooting in Hollywood. There's no coming out party that will ever be bigger than this. You need to pull this off. And I think being the kind of entrepreneur and risk taker that Jim is, he rallied the troops. And, you know, the, the images that we shot on day one are just as beautiful as the images that we shot on day 90. The biggest difference is that on day one, we had no frame lines. The camera could only run 24 frames a second, and we didn't have a remote on and off switch. By the time we finished the movie, it was fully, fully up and running.
0: You kind of answered one of my other questions, which is, did you shoot at a high frame rate like The Hobbit?
1: No. As all of this was going on, you know, Jim Cameron was, is a huge fan of Spider-Man. He actually had written a script for Spider-Man when, it, when Spider-Man was actually owned, believe it or not, at, at one point by the Cannon Group. It's always been a pet project of his. So we, Mark Webb and I were very fortunate that we got to spend a day with Jim Cameron at his house in his screening room. Basically, you know, sort of taking, we, 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 we would watch Avatar with him and he had it loaded into his computerized projection system in such a way that he could sort of deconstruct any shot or any scene. So we would look at the, you know, the flying scene and all of a sudden, by the time he stripped it back, it was Zoe Saldana on a on an, uh, uh, 55-gallon oil drum being run around a green screen with a couple of grips you know, right. Right. or Natiri flying. It was really spectacular. You know, Jim was the one. And so Jim said to us, you got to shoot 48 frames a second. It'll make it better. All the the issues of panning and strobing will go away. And so the reality is, though, remember, you, you take a movie like Spider-Man and it's going to, let's say, have a thousand visual effects shots. Now you shoot it in 3D. Now it's got 2000 visual effects shots. Now you shoot it at 48 frames a second, it's essentially got 4,000 visual effects shots. At some point, there's not enough. Although the projectors can project at that speed, there was nothing else that could keep up with us. I mean, we were shooting, we shot Spider-Man, and our image was, was, our image size, we shot 240, was 4.5K. That had never been done before. We put in a four petabyte sand of storage in the editing room. That's like what the NSA has. I mean, we were shooting 12 terabytes to 20 terabytes a day. Of footage. Of footage, which was, you know, not a lot. I mean, realize that 15 minutes was 512K. It was 256 times two cameras, and then double that because I had two rigs going. So, you know, you would do two, let's say that was a seven-minute master. You did two takes with two 3D rigs, and you're now at a terabyte and a half of footage. So for me, what I was happy about was I was getting these beautiful images. For everybody else, they were drowning in data, which I never have to deal with with film. One of the ironies with film is that, and I, I said this to somebody else, some of the best shots in Pearl Harbor were done with an, with an IMO camera, which was built in probably 1947, right? A bell and Howell IMO with a 100-foot daylight spool of film and an anamorphic lens on it. In the world of film, we never had to choose image quality. It was when we went to go to a smaller camera. We only chose whether it could run a long time or whether it was quiet. So no matter what, you you knew the image was gonna be gorgeous. The digital world doesn't have the equivalent. You wanna go small in the digital world and all of a sudden you're putting a 5D in a Pelican case as a crash housing. I was putting IMOs with 40-millimeter anamorphic lenses at the end of aircraft carriers and having Japanese Zeros take off. That image is every bit as good as the Panaflex with the 1,000-foot mag on it. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist in, in, in the digital world.
0: It sounds like, though, there's some, there's some progress towards that with the Red Epic and the small size of it.
1: There's no question. In every way, that camera sort of was a game changer.
0: I was going to ask you about the dynamic range on the Red Epic. Previous guests mentioned that the Red Epic achieves its high dynamic range by shooting two successive images and then blending them together.
1: It does have what's called an HDRI mode, which does that.
0: Did you employ that mode at all?
1: No, because you can't do it in 3D. Because in 3D, not only do the images have to be completely synchronized, they have to be... Pixel accurate, and in the HDRI mode, you can't, there's no, the, the clocks are not sophisticated enough to lock everything up. The other reality is, I don't need those kind of features. You know, those features are really more important for a documentary filmmaker. I'm doing a movie that is about not having to go out and shoot in bad light, it's about me taking control of the situation and creating the mood that I want it to be. So obviously when I'm on stage, I can set the dynamic range wherever I want. If I'm outside and I think it's too bright, I'll fly an overhead over the actors. I'm not running and gunning. I'm not trying to shoot from the back of a car on a city street with no lockup, trying to figure out how I can hold the balance between how bright the exterior is and how bright the interior is. I think that those kind of features are really help out independent filmmakers more than they help out somebody like me. I go in and I know, I see it in my mind's eye, and I light it to look that way. I was never pushing that camera. I, I probably never pushed that camera to the limits.
0: And then on this picture, I read that you actually lit by eye just looking at the monitor. Is that right?
1: Oh, I lit by eye like I always do, and I actually used my light meter.
0: Oh, okay. People
1: said, oh, you can't use a light meter on a digital movie. And I had a great colorist, a a young man by the name of Brooke Willard, who's really super talented. And he and I did a couple of tests together, and we figured out – because I said, look, I can't – I don't light by sitting in a television screen. I do it with my eye. I look at the room, and I can tell you what I think the exposure should be, but I've never exposed – for a digital camera – so teach me what I need to do differently. And he and I sort of figured out that the Red Epic was an 800-speed camera in full spectrum light from zero to, let's say, 5,600 Kelvin. And I felt it was 640 from zero to 3,200. And I, and I set my light meter that way, and I lit the Red Epic like I was lighting 5,219 film. It was that easy for me. I literally walked in. And I would look at a set and I say, Let's bring the back window up on the dimmer a little bit, or hey, let's turn that off and give me a little splash of light over here. Okay, I'm ready. And I never looked at a waveform monitor or a histogram or anything. I lit it and every once in a while somebody would say to me, You know, you might want to stop down a third of a stop or and I'd say, Okay, great, you know, you guys tell me, you know, what I need to do to protect myself there, but but don't tell me how to light.
0: Did you have so, to go with I guess, less volume in the lighting, given that it was a more sensitive camera?
1: No, because by the time you put the the front surface mirror on the 3D rig, it was exactly the same values as a film camera.
0: Right, as you said.
1: So it's an 800-speed camera, but now you put a one-stop front surface mirror in front of it, and now it's a 400-speed camera. That's the speed of 5219. So that's part of why, for me, it was seamless. I will say that since I've gone out and done commercials with both the RED and the Alexa, I suddenly realized, wow, I need a lot less light. These cameras are really sensitive. They are super fast.
0: Whereas in the past using film, you might have gone with a a lower ASA simply for the resolution and the grain structure and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, or conversely, sometimes you go for a higher ASA. For instance, when you're shooting slightly older female lead actresses, you may want to go with a faster film stock (laughs) <laughs> because it's got slightly less resolution. But those are all things that you do as a cinematographer. You pick the right stock for the right face. Emma Stone, you could shoot with anything in the world. She's, got an <laughs> absolutely, she's, she's absolutely beautiful, and she's got perfect skin. Blaise Danner is an absolutely beautiful woman, but she, to me, I thought she looked better with 500-speed film, which has slightly less resolution than 200-speed film. But that's taste and aesthetics. I mean, there's no right or wrong there. It's what do you like?
0: You've shot a lot of big movies in budget and in length. Was this the biggest in scale and in the amount of shooting days?
1: Oh, not even close. <laughs>
0: well, what's the winner in on the, in that category?
1: Well, I would say the, the winner in terms of days was Armageddon.
0: How many days on Armageddon?
1: I want to say we ended up at 130 days.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And that was a lot of – and that was me going to NASA – and shooting two shuttle launches with 17 cameras each time. And also Pearl Harbor was a huge, I mean, these are huge. Spider-Man is a big movie, and it's, a, it's obviously a franchise, but it's, it was by no means as big as any of the big Michael Bay movies. I mean, when, you know, when you shut down all the freeways in Hawaii and you're going to blow up 10 full-size ships, right, that are mothballed for Pearl Harbor... That's a big movie.
0: Well, according to my sources, uh, the director, Mark Webb, in fact, you talked about this already, he wanted a more reality-grounded Spider-Man than the Raimi movies were. I was wondering, other than reality, what else drove your visual design and your visual decisions for this movie?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, really, that and sort of Reva's production design, I mean, I want to say in the back of our minds, I mean, and Mark really kept us honest at all times, and it was really important for him that this movie be grounded in reality. I mean, the Oscorp building that we chose for the movie is based on a real building in New York that was Sir Norman Foster built, and we just extended it. We shot the whole sort of, you'll see in the movie when they go to Oscorp, that's shot in New York, in in this building. So every time Mark could make it for real, Mark, in Mark's vision, we would never have had a CG Spider-Man ever. He wanted to swing real people at all times, and we did it everywhere we possibly could. And even if what we did didn't end up in the movie, it informed the animators, because Mark's whole thing was, look, this is a 17-year-old kid who's becoming a superhero. He's not perfect at it. He shouldn't be perfect shooting webs and swinging through the city. There should be He should be getting better as he progresses. So... You know, that was one of the great things about Mark. He was like, nah, you know, it's too good. It's too clean. It needs to be dirty. If you look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and they're beautiful movies, there's no dirt on it. It, it. it looks like it's shot on the back lot. And that was done on purpose. The colors are all amped up and that was the style. They sort of, you know, it was, it was their interpretation of Steve Ditko and Stan Lee's kind of style from the original Spider-Man. Mark, you know, I, I, hate, I, want, I don't want to say, I guess, we, we went for the sort of, the reboot went more in the direction that Chris Nolan went when he rebooted Batman. This movie is dark, and I mean dark both visually and dark emotionally, and it's very good.
0: While preparing to interview you, I watched the trailer many times, and I found that each time I watched the trailer, it was even more... Engaging and more sort of enticing, you know those those teases and the the themes that are played out seemed even more interesting every single time I watched.
1: And when you really see the whole movie, you're going to be really, I think, surprised and impressed. The other thing is, short of Heath Ledger, you've never seen performances like this in this genre of movie. It's not just a guy in a skin tight suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't happen till almost close to the last third of the movie you know it's an angry young man
0: you mentioned a few minutes ago J Michael Riva and he's the production designer for the amazing spider-man and sadly just yesterday he he passed away and I wondered if you might talk about mr. Riva both as an artist and just about your collaboration with him
1: uh, look Riva I've known Riva for a long time he's an incredibly gifted production designer he had done the Iron Man movies as well and certainly I think if you look at Iron Man 1 it was a sea change and sort of like great production design and one of the things that Michael really understood better than I did was how you integrate live action and CG so he was great at kind of whispering in my ear saying hey don't worry this will do in post he's also just a great collaborator he comes from a family of filmmakers his grandmother is Marlena Dietrich, so he's grown up in this business, and he was just lovely. I mean, every day he was fun, and we all have egos, but at the end of the day, he, like everybody else, just wanted to make the best movie. I mean, it's tragic what happened to Michael.
0: Well, he was also a production designer on Spider-Man 3, and I would imagine his previous experience with the character was, would have been valuable to you and, and the director.
1: Yeah, although understand that he came in on Spider-Man 3, having replaced Neil Spizak probably halfway through that movie. He was there to finish that one. Not to take anything away from his work, but I think Michael was actually very excited about getting to reboot Spider-Man because it was you know his own creation.
0: Changing subjects a little bit, The Amazing Spider-Man is... Definitely not your first trip to the rodeo, so to speak. That being said, are there still situations you face as a DP that surprise you and challenge you in fresh ways on a movie like this?
1: They always do. Everybody shows up for work hoping that if the day can unfold like this, it'll be fantastic and everything will go my way. The only two movies where I've ever had that kind of control, one was Seabiscuit, and the reason for that was because we were shooting in the fall and the winter, and we had a lot of exteriors. We had to be in the right place at the right time. And we had a, we had a cast that there were no major, major superstars. So everybody sort of joined on and said, okay, I'll be there at sunrise for this shot. And the reality was, I, made, I think I made a really beautiful looking movie, and it wasn't that hard to do. It was about planning your shoot and shooting your plan. The other one that was like that was The Rookie. It was the same kind of thing, but that was for different reasons. We didn't have a lot of time, and we didn't have a lot of money. With these bigger movies and now, with the CG and effects movies, you realize that you want to, you're ready to go, you want to shoot, but the riggers are still rigging the effects, or somebody else is doing this, and you're watching either the sun move or the clouds come in. So now you've got to be backed up with, okay, what do I do if it's an overcast day? Well, I better have some big lights on a crane at the back edge of the field over there you end up sort of you know hedging your bet the bigger the movie the more you are like a hedge fund manager the smaller the movie the more you hope that people rely on the fact that you say we should be here in the morning and there in the afternoon and if you follow my plan we can move very quickly
0: well that sounds a little bit like the opposite of what most people and myself would think I would think on a movie like spider-man you have so many resources that would lend itself toward, I guess, quote-unquote, more perfect filmmaking. But what you're saying is, is the opposite.
1: It is the opposite. There are so many moving parts. There are so many things going on that you it becomes harder to ride herd as a cinematographer on the big movies than it does on the smaller ones. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's a $200 million movie or a $2 million movie, if you're shooting day exterior... You've gone to this location and you've said to somebody, look, this location is really beautiful from 8.30 in the morning to 11. Do you think we can get this done? If you don't, then what you have to do is figure out, okay, so how am I going to make it look like it's 8.30 in the morning for two days?
0: Speaking of lighting, I find that so many of your compositions and your lighting style are really quite painterly. And I wondered, are you a student of
1: painting? I think all cinematographers are, and certainly it's something that I love. And I would say, you know, it's the same old thing. You look at the Dutch masters and all of those people, but really my greatest sort of like lesson in cinematography came from when Vittorio Storaro was shooting Tucker. I was working on Tucker. I got hired to become, I I had already shot a bunch of low budget movies. I loved Vittorio Storaro's work. He was my hero. So I got hired by George Lucas to go and shoot the behind-the-scenes documentary of Tucker, which meant that I was on set every day. I didn't really, I mean, it wasn't that much stuff to shoot. So I got to spend every day with Vittorio Serraro, who certainly I think is one of the more painterly cinematographers, and pick his brain and, and sort of try to understand what his process was to how you tell a story. And I came off of that movie a completely different cinematographer.
0: So if someone were to ask you who your favorite painter is, you might say Vittorio Storaro. Oh,
1: well, certainly I would say that. I mean, I, but I would also say to you, I mean, there's some weird ones like Russell Chatham, who's a great American landscape painter. And I would probably say my favorite painter is J.M.W. Turner. I mean, I would say Turner is, to me, the painter that most cinematographers would probably go, that's the guy. You come from
0: a family of serious and successful filmmakers and artists, and I wondered how that's affected you in your development as a cinematographer. And I guess what advice you might have for someone who maybe possesses a talent and a drive but doesn't have that support and guidance that someone such as yourself may have had.
1: Well, the interesting thing is that, it, it yes, in, in fact, you know, by marriage, part of my family has a long film history. But what I would say to you is that the one thing about being a uh, – if you work in the trade craft in the film business, you can't fake it, right? Right. Anybody can get a co-producer credit or an associate producer credit, but you, you can't – Michael Riva is Marlena Dietrich's grandson, but that doesn't make him a production designer. There's no way. You have to be great at what you do, right? You can't get to that position. So, but what I did come from was a family of people that felt that this career was a worthy one and that, you know, they were supportive of you following your passion in the arts. And obviously it's done very well for, for me and my cousins and my brothers and, you know, a bunch of people. So it's been a, you know, it's been a good ride for all of us.
0: So in other words, that family support, just the mere fact that, your family supports you in what you do and they see it as as a viable
1: craft. Correct. Was a great thing. That that certainly was important. It it meant that it was okay to barely scrape by making a living, but with the goal of, of maybe doing something of making it. And and certainly, you know, it's like my grandfather who won a couple of Oscars as a composer, you know, for years worked as a flutist for arturo Toscanini in new york you know working his way up as a guy who just you know played the flute on sunday nights for nbc in my family pursuing the arts was something that was considered very worthwhile and i would say the same for anybody
0: when you watch movies what do you watch
1: these days uh a lot of foreign films
0: what's something recent that you've appreciated
1: well, actually, you know what I saw recently? Two things I saw recently. I really loved uh, *Moonrise Kingdom*, which I just saw, but I also love Wes Anderson, and I, you know, I still think the best Wes Anderson movie is the one that my brother's in, which is um, <laughs> *Rushmore*. Rush, which is *Rushmore*, which yes. is fantastic. But I really, in this summer of big budget movies, it was very nice to see uh, *Moonrise Kingdom* because it had such a singular sort of sense of authorship, which I thought was beautiful. And then I, went, I and the other night my wife and I went and saw Snow White and the Huntsman. And and I thought on a visual level it was absolutely stunning and I actually really liked the movie. I mean I would say it probably could have been 10 minutes shorter, but boy it was really it was so sumptuous to look at.
0: I wish uh, what you just said was put in a memo and sent to nearly every executive about nearly every movie that comes out. <laughs> Movies have seemed to gotten so much longer lately.
1: Yeah, you know, here's one of the great things about Spider-Man. It's not long. I loved The Avengers. I thought that Josh Whedon did an amazing job of putting all those actors in the same movie. It had a great sense of humor. It was two hours and 36 minutes long. At a certain point, the last act started to get a bit noisy for me. It could have been shorter. But I will say this. There's a couple of movies that are sort of my go-to movies that I go to all the time. And I would say that probably... I mean, my top ten list changes a lot, but I still right now am feeling like The Exorcist may be on every level one of the best movies ever made. What's
0: the best advice you can offer new or young cinematographers?
1: What I would say, and, and this is what I really am seeing a lot of that wasn't the way it was when I was a kid. Now, I was very fortunate. I went to USC film school. But the best part of going to USC Film School was not necessarily the, the classes that I went to, but every year when you went to SC Film School, they handed you a, a book, and it, sh- was, it was a list of every movie that was being shown during the day for every class. So even if you weren't taking um, French New Wave Cinema as a film theory critic at USC, you as a, as a production student could go sit in on those classes. So I used to schedule my day so I'd have a class in the morning and a class in the afternoon, and I would cram every day with seeing movies, and I would see them on the big screen. And unfortunately, what's happened, and I don't know how we get around this, it's, it's harder and harder to see these movies on the big screen. Watch you know, Diary of a Country Priest by Brisson. Watch these great movies. These were the seminal films. Yes, I enjoyed RoboCop, but that's not an old movie. Watch Citizen Kane and understand why every type of visual technique that's used in every single movie from, you know, uh, The Last Emperor to Alien is all right there in Citizen Kane. You really need to watch movies. And I watched hundreds of movies in my three years at USC. And that, to me, was really the greatest part about That was what was so great about going to film school, but I could watch, in this course of a year, 12 Kurosawa films. I could watch the samurai movies, but I could also watch the high and the low, and, you know, um, even the bad Sleep Well, the, the modern ones, which I always thought were better than the samurai movies.
0: From a print, on a big screen.
1: On a big screen. And I feel like the thing that I notice when I, and I meet a lot of young filmmakers is they don't seem to have the depth of seen films and the history of films to the degree that my generation did. You know, I my generation which when I went to USC film school was me and Jay Roach and Michael Lehman and it was a class of 20 it was a very small film school and a bunch of other people. But you know, we would talk about watching a Murnau film or a Dreyer film and seeing it projected. No, you know, and I don't think that these kids to today get the opportunity to do that, or maybe even know what these movies are. I don't know if they would know who Dreyer is, or Emma or Yawnings, and have they seen The Last Laugh? I think that there's, a, there's something to be said for understanding sort of the history of cinema. I remember putting on Charlie Chaplin for my kids, because it was like, I had, a, I had my son at the time was like 10, and my daughter was six and a half, and it was like, how do you find a movie that both of them want to watch? And I remember putting on Modern Times, and they were like, ah, we don't want to watch this black-and-white movie. And within five minutes, it was like, you know, they were sucked in.
0: Well, John, thank you so much. Your body of work speaks for itself. We're so privileged to be able to speak with you. And I mean it very sincerely when I say it's been a really great honor for me.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: Our thanks again to John Schwartzman ASC for joining us. And our thanks to you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more episodes of The Camera Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us to see updates. If you'd like to offer feedback or have questions about the show, email us, podcast at waterfootfilms.com.
1: This is Sean Malone, and until next time...